If you have your Bibles with you this morning, I invite you to turn to the Gospel of Matthew, the second chapter. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one in the pew in front of you. Please feel free to use that. And when you have found Matthew chapter 2, I'm going to ask you to stand so that we might hear read together the word of the living God. Matthew chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, this is the word of the Lord. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means the least among the rulers of Judah. From you shall come a ruler who shall shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw Mary They saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Let's pray together. Father, thank you again, as always, for your word, for loving us and caring about us enough to to give your word to us, to preserve it for us, to teach us through it and change us and mold us and shape us. All that happens, Lord, when your spirit joins your word. So that's what we pray for this morning, that shaping, that change to occur as we together, your people, gather around your word and dwell by your spirit. And may it all be for your glory and for our good. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. This morning we are continuing in our brand new series on the Gospel of Matthew. This is our fourth sermon. And in these early days of our study, it's good to keep bringing out background information so that we can better understand Matthew, who he is as an author, as an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. As one who then went internationally after the death and resurrection of Christ to preach the good news of the gospel. Remembering that he wrote what he wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Remembering too that it is that same Spirit of God that has superintended not only the writing of the word, but the transmission of that word and how that word would be used, and God has done all this for the sake of the church, so that his church might be strong. 
so that his church might grow up in every way into Christ, so that his kingdom might advance with, with great power in every place and in every age. And so toward that end, the gospel of Matthew was far and away the most widely read and most important gospel of the early church. Leon Morris writes in his commentary, we should not overlook the fact that throughout most of the centuries of the Christian church, this gospel has been held to be the most important we have. In the ancient manuscripts, it is the first of the four. And in common use, it was clearly held to be the most important. R.T. France writes in his commentary, It is a fact that message spoke to all of the fledgling churches of his day. And the gospel appears to have circulated rapidly and widely. And the Matthew's gospel provides necessary instruction for all future disciples, Jew and Gentile, who form a new community and obedience to Jesus the Messiah amid significant opposition. Look, it's clear, I think, as we look around, we have in a time of growing opposition to the gospel. When we define the gospel as finding salvation through Christ alone. Great opposition to that in our day. It's clear as well the culture in which we live makes disobedience very easy for us, right? Because it can all be done in secret. It's also clear from our culture, a culture that likes to keep your options open, <laughs> always that devotion to anything or anyone is like a foreign concept. So modern criticism aside of Matthew and the debates about the authorship and the time and the place and, and all the other attacks that come against the gospel of Matthew, all that does not change the fact that under the supervision of a sovereign God, this is the gospel that shaped the early church through the power of the Holy Spirit. And this gospel needs to shape our church as well, to guide us and to change us. And so here we are together on the eve of a new year. And the Christmas story, as Matthew tells it, presents us with at least three acts, three acts, that if we perform them, and prayerfully we will in 2018, Doing these three acts will shape us more and more into the kind of church that advances the kingdom of God, even in the face of opposition. But before we look at what Matthew presents, let's look at what Matthew does not present. We can learn much about what Matthew hopes to communicate and the acts that can bring true change by considering what he leaves out. Of his story. So let me start with the bad news. The bad news is that what Matthew leaves out of his story would absolutely decimate your nativity scene. Right? Matthew makes no mention of the shepherds. For his purpose, they're not life-changing. Matthew doesn't tell of the host of heavenly angels filling the sky. For his purpose, they're not life-changing. 
Matthew doesn't tell of that infamous innkeeper. Matthew doesn't tell us about a stable, not important for his purpose. Matthew doesn't mention a manger or swaddling clothes. For his purpose, they're not life-changing. If we only had Matthew's gospel to go by, our repertoire for church music during the Advent season would be very, very limited. We would have never sung, Hark, the herald angels sing. What angels? We would have never sung away at a manger. What manger? Or silent night? Or angels we have heard on high? Or the first Noel? Or what child is this? Who knows? See, Matthew doesn't give us sentimentality. And by sentimentality, I just use the definition that describes it as relying on feelings and over-reliance on feelings to guide us to truth. Sentimentality is appealing to, to shallow or uncomplicated emotions at the expense of reason. So on some level, I think it would be a blessing for us if we could have a blank Christmas slate. And not know of any of these other details. Not because they're not important. They're highly important. And not because Luke was not inspired to write. He was. Just as Matthew was inspired to write. It's just that Luke's version. The shepherds in the manger. That's the one we sentimentalize, isn't it? That's the one that appears on the cover of all the Christmas cards. And very often we stop then at the warm fuzzies that we get. When we think about the singing angels and the manger, the swaddling clothes, those cute, fuzzy little animals. So we stop there. And they don't produce in us a reason to think deeply. But Matthew, on the other hand, he tells the hard story. Matthew tells about the flight the family had to take to Egypt to escape being put to death. Matthew tells the story of a voice Weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. As Herod had put to death all the baby boys. These are complicated realities to which we must apply our reason. Realities that would resonate very well with a persecuted church. But realities that are difficult to sentimentalize. We don't know why Matthew left out these beautiful parts of the story. But we can see where our focus goes when these elements are eliminated. Look, after reducing the birth of Jesus, the birth of Jesus to a sentence and a half, writing, he took Mary, Joseph took Mary his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. That's it. Matthew then skips immediately to the wise men, And the star they saw. Another divine interruption. Not unlike the one we saw last week in the life of Joseph on the part of God to redirect the story of people's life. Matthew doesn't give us sentimentality. He gives us sovereignty through a star. So the first act, here it is, act number one, that will shape us into people and a church that advance the kingdom of God is this. We must submit our lives to the work of a sovereign God. Look in verse 2. It says there that the wise men who saw the star refer to it as his star. Now surely the wise men just intended to indicate, oh, this is the star that indicated that Jesus had been born. But 
maybe they meant more than that. We don't know, but we know this. We know of a sovereign God who controls all things. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by, all, by him all things were created in heaven and on, on earth, visible and invisible. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So, how can we even begin to understand what we have read, what's called his star? When Jesus is a baby in a manger, he puts his star in the sky. We who are captive to time, we whose minds are so finite, can't understand how that could happen simultaneously. Baby and star. If it even was simultaneous, how do we know? We're held captive by time. We could get completely lost in, in the wonder of it. You could get a little bothered by it. No, can't be true. Can't be true. But then faith draws us back. Well, yes, it is true. And then you try to figure out how it could be true, but you can't even begin to answer that question. And so just at the moment that we begin to feel lost and small and insignificant in comparison to the greatness of a God who can do these things, can be born in a stable and simultaneously put his own star in the sky, then we remember that the Lord put that star in the sky for these wise men. These. Maybe for others as well. But nowhere in Scripture are we told that anyone else saw the star. Surely it was seen by others, but we don't know that. Matthew concerns himself with these men. He saw these men at their work as astrologers. He saw them making their calculations. He knew their hearts and their motivations. And so it was at least for their individual benefit that the Lord placed his star in the sky. And so while the shepherds are gathering around the manger of the baby Jesus a thousand miles away, wise men are seeing the star because God is sovereign. And he can take it all in at once. No one is ever lost. No one is ever unseen. Because God is a sovereign God. And so it is true. He's got the whole world in his hands. You know that song? You know that song? He's got the whole world in his hands. Sing, come on. He's got the whole world in his hands. He's got the whole world in his hands. He's got the whole world in his hands. One more time. He's got the whole world in his hands. 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 There he now listen, if you'll delete that from the recording. Because only I came across on that. Y'all sounded great. Listen, that's Matthew's message to us. God does have the whole world in his hands. He is sovereign. He's in control of all things. And so God does, in fact, 
work all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And by all things, Scripture means all things, even stars, right? Not just good things, not just happy things, not just fun things, not just the things we like, not just the things of which we are even aware. God, who is sovereign, works all things together. An early church that faced great opposition and persecution needed that message because they're all things were difficult things. They were painful. They were grief-producing. These are what opposition and persecution bring about. What are your all things? And how are you dealing with your all things? See, Matthew's message of sovereignty not only provides comfort, but also strength and boldness and fearlessness for those who follow Christ. For those who not only call themselves Christians, But for those who want to truly follow Christ and become his disciples and advance his kingdom, even in the face of opposition, we must stand in awe of and submit ourselves to the sovereign work of God. That's act one. Act two is this. The act that will shape us into people a church that advanced the kingdom of God, we must respond radically to God's sovereign work. So God works sovereignly. We must respond radically to that work. Look in verse 1. Matthew tells us that wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. From the east to Jerusalem. Now we're not certain which country these wise men hailed from. Could have been Persia, Media, Damascus. We do know that because of the gifts they brought, these gifts were available to and used by the wise men of Babylon, so maybe they had come from Babylon. If that be true, they had traveled a distance of 800 to 1,000 miles to get to Bethlehem. That's a long way 2,000 years ago. A journey that would have taken months and months and months. But the wise men were determined to make the journey to find Jesus. They were determined to make this journey to find Jesus. They thought he was worth it. Now, I'll let that just soak in for a minute. Because that is a radical response. And men of their stature and prominence, you know, we usually call them kings. We three kings of Orient are. Don't worry, we're not going to sing again. They didn't just saddle up one night and say, hey, let's go to to Bethlehem and strike out on their own. If these men traveled like other men of their rank in that day, they might have had a full military escort accompanying them, along with servants. The total party could have amounted to more than 300 people. Imagine the expense. You know, when Kathy and I used to travel with our five children, I might pull into McDonald's, and if I did, I would say, okay, you can split one large fry among you and have a glass of water. And they know I'm telling the truth on that. Brooke's like, oh. But the wise men's response was radical. They committed to this long, arduous trip at great expense to go to an unknown place to find an unknown baby because they saw the star in the sky that a sovereign God had placed there. And by faith they knew 
what that star meant. A new king had been born. And they knew that they must respond to what they had seen. And so they responded radically, not caring about the cost incurred. And maybe the early church got Matthew's message here. Maybe this is why, in spite of persecution and opposition, the early church grew and grew and grew and grew around the world. Maybe it's why God added daily to their numbers because of the radical response that the church made to the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the work of His Spirit. They were willing to do radical things, difficult things, arduous things, costly things. And the same should be true for us because we have the Word of God. We have the Spirit of God at work in us. And His truth and His Spirit are at work in us while we are in the midst of our work, whatever it is. We don't have to retreat from life and go onto a mountaintop. No, God's Spirit always at work in us as as He was at work in these wise men while they were going about their jobs and their lives. And they responded radically to that work. You could choose... You could. You could choose to make 2018 a year of radical response. Why would you and I, why would we not make that choice? What keeps us from radical response? What it will cost? The wise men didn't seem to care. The monetary cost or the time or the cost of the arduous trip when they could have stayed comfortably at home and made that choice. Let's respond radically. First to the work that the Lord has done in us by saving us, granting salvation unto us. And then to the ongoing work of the Spirit As the Spirit of God teaches us and reveals to us more and more and more truth from His Word. And as the Lord puts before us greater and greater and greater challenges that require from us greater and greater faith and greater and greater dependence on the Lord in order to advance His kingdom right now in this place, even in the face of opposition. That's the second act, radical response. The third act is this, that if we do it, will shape us into a church and a people that advance the kingdom of God. And that is we must worship Jesus lavishly. Look in the second part of verse 2. The wise men say, For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. See, the wise men now have a new purpose in life. And that purpose is to find Jesus so that they might worship him. Now look at the second part of verse 9. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star... They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Not regular joy. Not just great joy. But the greatest joy, the top of the joy chart kind of joy. 
These wise men were so joyful to see that star because that star was going to enable them to realize this goal of their life, and that is to worship Jesus. The star would take them there so that they could do that thing. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. And so finally, the moment they had been longing for, the moment they had imagined. See, I can imagine that the imagining of this moment for the wise men is what motivated them and made the cost and the length and the trials of the trip worth it. Maybe they said to themselves, when we get there, when we find him, we will be able to worship him. And that's what they did. They worshiped Jesus. They fell down before him. And the form of their worship was not taking. It was not asking, what's in it for me? No, the form of the worship of the wise men was the form of giving. Hear, O king, receive. Receive these elaborate gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. They did not hold back in worship. You and I don't have to imagine worship. It's a privilege that God grants to us week after week to come together as His church, together as people who have their own stories of God's sovereign work in our lives. Stories of the beautiful, transforming work that Jesus has done in us. Stories about how Jesus has made the old new. Stories of forgiveness. Stories of new beginnings. Stories about the way he's opened our eyes and our hearts to his truth. Stories about healings that he's brought. Stories of his divine disturbances and his unexpected interruptions. These are things that God has done and so much more. And so you and I get to come together to worship him for his greatness and his glory and his goodness and his grace and for what he's done for us. And so I pray that 2018 will be marked by lavish worship here at Redeemer. That we as a family on mission together see that Jesus is worthy of our best in worship. Now I could get a little crazy here. Y'all have never seen me really go crazy. Yet. (laughs) No. But I could go crazy by imagining that imagining worship This gathering, this worshiping of Jesus, is what actually gets us through the week. Can you imagine that? That you're imagining being here to worship Jesus with other believers is what gets you through your week. Imagine if this were the highlight of your week, worshiping. Imagine if it weren't an afterthought for people. Imagine if it weren't something they did if they weren't too tired to get out of bed. But really imagine this. Imagine 
if they came to worship even when there was a football game? Oh, now you're asking too much. Yeah, you're not laughing because you know it's true. Worship isn't about how good the music is. And worship is not about how good the sermon is. Of course, the Lord deserves our best. He deserves great music. He deserves faithful preaching. But when we make that our focus, then it's easier to come to worship to take than to give. Instead, we should just do this. Gather every week to celebrate the goodness of the Lord. To bow and worship with our best. That kind of worship will shape us into a people and a church that will advance the kingdom of God even in the face of opposition. Now, I hate to disappoint you because that sounds like, oh, that's the end. Act one, two, and three, we're done. Not quite. I want to conclude with this, just a couple of more minutes, because there is another contrast that Matthew puts here before us. Just like last week, we contrasted Joseph with King Ahaz. This week, Matthew contrasts the wise men He puts them right beside the religious leaders of the day, the chief priests and the scribes. When the wise men saw the star, they responded radically and they sought Jesus to worship him. So they go to Herod, the king of the Jews, a man of their own rank, and they ask him, where is he who is born the king of the Jews? And so Herod inquires of the religious experts. And here's the thing. The religious experts on it say, oh, King Herod, may we have a day, may we have a week to discover the answer to your question. No, look in verse 5. They answer immediately. Oh, easy. In Bethlehem, in Judea, for so it was written by the prophet. So it seems that the religious leaders would have put two and two together. Let's see. These important men saw a star. They traveled a very long way. At very great expense because they believe a king is to be born. Bethlehem is the place. It's just a few miles away. Let's go see if the baby has been born. But they did not go. So look at the contrast. The wise men knew the least. And yet eagerly traveled the furthest to get to Jesus. The religious experts knew the most. They knew exactly where Jesus was to be born, but they refused to take the five-mile journey to Bethlehem to see him. And the tragedy of it is that the religious leaders were sure that the Messiah was to be born, but they did not bother to go see if he was born. So they showed others the way to Christ, but did not go themselves. So surely Matthew hopes that those who read his story, you and me included, will see the contrast. Surely Matthew hopes that those who read his story will make the wise men choice. That they will seek Jesus and radically respond to Jesus and worship Jesus lavishly. So the question for us is, who will you, who will I, be more like on this eve of a brand new year let's orient this entire year that's before us not around sentimentality but instead around thinking deeply about the work of the sovereign god 
of the star. He's at work in you and me. And it's good to ask ourselves if we are humbly submitting to that sovereign work or fighting against it, which is, in fact, a vain pursuit. And so with the image of these traveling wise men in our minds, let's remember to respond radically to the work of the Lord in our lives. Reminding ourselves that no commitment is too much commitment when it comes to the Lord. And no offering is too great. So with the image of the wise men bowing in worship before Jesus, let's commit to be lavish in worship, giving the Lord our first and our best. Take my silver and my gold, not a mite would I withhold. And on this New Year's Eve, let's dare to make the comparison. Are we like the wise men, willing and eager for the Lord to change us and call us to radical things, or are we like the religious experts, content with and comfortable in and protective of the world we've already made for ourselves. The choice is ours to make. But remember, before you choose, the person and the church who submits to the sovereign work of God, the person and the church who responds radically to that work, the person in the church who worships Jesus lavishly, that person and that church will advance the kingdom of God in this time, in this place, even in the face of opposition. Let, let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you again that it's truth. Thank you for this gospel, this beautiful gospel of Matthew. Thank you, Lord, for the way you inspired him to tell this story and for what you make so clear through his writing. And so, Lord, I just pray that you would be at work in our hearts and lives. Lord, there's more here, so much more here than these three acts that have been drawn out this morning. So, Lord, if that's your will, if that's what you would have us here this morning, then accomplish it in us. Help us be people who are submissive and radical responders and lavish worshipers. Lord, if there's other truth that you have for others here, work that truth into their lives as well. But we do pray that in 2018, that this church, Redeemer Presbyterian Church, will be on the front line of advancing your kingdom in this place, for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.